welcome to the 43rd episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Céline Vallaud from L'Institut Curie in Paris. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Céline, for joining me today. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. Um, you got your PhD from Institut Curie in 2009. After that, you did your postdoc with Claire Rugel. I hope I pronounced that no, correctly. Okay. Rougel, please say, but it's fine. <laughs> Rougel, okay. At the Epigenetics and Self-Aid Institute. Um, then in 2013, you moved on to the CNRS as a research scientist. And since 2017, you are head of the Dynamics of Epigenetics Plasticity Group at Institut Curie in Paris. And obviously, you are still there today. Um, a question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Well, initially, uh, actually, I was trained after high school in math and physics, so it was not uh, meant to be that I was going for biology. Uh, but I, I, right from the start, I clearly wanted to, to do some science and some research. And then looking at what was, was done in physics and math, it didn't seem um, as applied as I wanted to be. So I wanted to be closer to kind of the, the society and, and the reality of, uh, for example, uh, health uh, questions. So that's where I turned to biology, and I've tried to use Uh, throughout um, the last years of my career, I've tried to, to combine my knowledge in math and physics to, to what I've learned in biology. But it's true, I was a late, uh, lately trained in biology. Yeah, sometimes you don't um, start out where you then um, um, finish off. Uh, what you already said is uh, like um, to the end of uh, the questions I have to the end of the interview, but um, does, we can answer that now already. Um, so does your background in math and physics help you with the things you are doing now? Uh, definitely, it completely influences the way uh, I tackle the biological questions we try to answer, either for X chromosome activation and now for cancer, in the sense that I really try to, to combine approaches, both the data science approaches, which I really learned doing math, uh, clearly, mm -hmm. and then also technologically speaking, uh, we have done, for example, uh, tight collaborations with physicists to develop microfluidic system, and this I wouldn't have done or dared to try it if I didn't... Uh, have a, a physics background, that's for sure. So, so it is the, the risk you're taking. Yeah. So having other interests than just biology helps definitely to run also a biology lab, obviously. Yes. <laughs> In the interdisciplinary fashion, yeah, uh, at the maximum, yeah. So coming to your science that centers around the dynamics of epigenetic plasticity in cancer, but uh, yeah, so this is what you're doing now, but I want to start with your postdoc years. Uh, there you focused a little bit on in X inactivation and the role of the non-coding RNA X act. Uh, but to be honest, I never heard of that RNA. <laughs> I know exist and I know six, uh, but I never heard of X act. Uh, could you quickly explain what X act or X act or how that is pronounced uh, does? Yeah, we say exact or yeah, exact if you wish. Uh, but yeah, when I started my postdoc, so it was 2010, um, people didn't know a lot about X inactivation in human. We, we knew a lot uh, about X inactivation in mouse, uh, working on mouse embryonic stem cells in mouse embryos. And it was clear that exist was the master regulator. So it's a repressive, uh, like we say repressive London coding RNA that's going to coat uh, the future inactive X and launch uh, the epigenetic silencing of one of the two X chromosome in females. And the early results from other labs, like the HERD lab, for example, uh, in Institut Curie, uh, were starting to see that in human it was much more complex. And for example, in embryos, we have the exist London RNA that was coating active X chromosome and it didn't launch X inactivation. 
So clearly in humans, it wasn't as close as mouse as we expected. And that's when I started. And, and we clearly understood from the start that we needed to look for other London coding RNA to complete uh, kind of the picture because looking at this was not enough to understand the dynamics of X chromosome inactivation. And so we were at the early days of RNA-seq, so RNA sequencing, uh, chip sequencing. And so using these new technologies uh, in human embryonic stem cells to start with, we characterized uh, the transcriptome of these cells and we looked really in particular for London coding RNAs on the X. And that's where to our surprise, we discovered uh, a London coding RNA that was specific to the active X chromosome that was very long, unspliced, so kind of a 200 kilo base guy, so quite surprising. And we went directly to the microscope to do some immunofluorescence to see with probes how it was looking uh, in, the, in the nuclei. And there, to our surprise, we saw that this big transcript was accumulating on the active X chromosome, just as exists. We thought it, I had really mixed up the, the probes, but no, <laughs> it was really a kind of the mirror picture. And so in these cells, you have both the exist and the exact on the mirror kind of basis on the two X chromosome. It was quite fascinating. Um, and then we went to human embryos, collaborating with Herd Lab. Indeed, and we went to human embryos, and we thought that it was also coating active X chromosome uh, in this uh, pre-implantation setting, and perhaps counteracting uh, the exists. Uh, they were fighting for the, the X chromosome. Was really the pictures are, are were fascinating to start with. I mean, we we had those two London carnets uh, fighting for the X chromosome and perhaps preventing it from silencing the X chromosome. And it was the early start of exact uh, story, actually. So when you when you uh, describe that, it seems that the X chromosome is pretty busy, right? I mean, there are so many RNAs uh, co coating. I, I don't know what this should look like, but how does the polymerase manage to still transcribe uh, those X chromosomes when there is so much going on there? <laughs> yeah, that's something we didn't yet figure out. I mean, we would need an integrated view of both uh, the 3D structure Uh, the London coding uh, coating on the genomic uh, loci plus uh, histone marks to really have uh, an appreciation of whether there's any space left <laughs> for this to happen. Uh, but the resolution we had in the microscopy was not enough to answer that, but apparently there should be some space left. Yeah, so in, in 2015, you published a paper in uh, Cell Stem Cell titled Erosion of X Chromosome Inactivation in Human Pluripotent Cells Initiate with exact coating and depends on a specific heterochromatin landscape. So what did you find there in the respect of this uh, yeah, heterochromatin landscape? So, so yeah, in, in this story, we really worked on human embryonic stem cells only, and they had a, a propensity to epigenetic erosion, as we say in the title, meaning that when you keep them uh, for a while, they start to have a reactivation of their inactive X. So meaning that at this point in time, Uh, where the cells are taken from the inner cell mass of the embryo, they are not yet stable into how they maintain X chromosome inactivation. And we thought it was a pretty good opportunity to study uh, the, the stability plus the mechanism that control uh, the early steps of X chromosome inactivation. Uh, and by doing so, uh, we were able to isolate either X, uh, sorry, either cells with an inactive X or partially inactive X, and we were able to time all the events that were leading to reactivation. And we clearly uh, appreciated that the earliest event in this reactivation process was the appearance of the exact transcript on the inactive X, which was slowly pushing away the exist transcript. And they're quite complementary on how they bind mm -hmm. to this uh, future reactivated X. And only then do you start seeing re-expression of some X-linked genes. It's after exact uh, coating. So clearly, exactly one of the earliest events. And then you start to see remodeling of this uh, architecture. 
And so this is how we timed that. And we, again, it pushed the idea that exact exists at these early steps were kind of fighting or they were kind of uh, protecting uh, the X chromosome from full inactivation uh, uh, at this point in time. So XIST also recruits uh, factors that put like the heterochromatin landscape there is then exact um, recruiting factors that remove those heterochromatin factors or does it recruit uh, like um, factors that put like uh, euchromatic stuff there? So uh, yeah, it's something we, we don't have data for and the lab of Claire Rougel is still investigating uh, for sure. Um, the thing is, if you put back uh, into perspective of the in vivo setting, it's not meant to be this way. I mean, if you have human embryos, they're not, you're not going to keep them at this point in time for a long time. They're going to switch to further develop and so on. So you're not going to observe this instability, epigenomic instability. What mm -hmm. you observe is the other way around. You have existing Z that are there, and what exact is off, then exist can make his job and silence the chromosome. So I don't know in this setting whether exact needs to recruit anything or whether it's occupancy okay. at the level of the chromosome. So, so it, we really need to keep close to the in vivo setting to make conjunctions and hypotheses okay. on that. Okay. So you then moved on and uh, published a final paper in 2016 um, with the title Exact Non-Coding RNA Competes, as you already lined out with EXIST in the control of X chromosome activity during human early development. Is there something um, new to that, what you didn't mention right now? Uh, the, the only thing I didn't mention is we tried to introduce the exact into mouse embryonic stem cells uh, because it wasn't there. I mean, the sequence yeah. is not conserved uh, in mouse. Uh, oh, so, so the exact. Uh, sorry, I, I yeah. think I missed that. So the exact is uh, exclusive to humans. Yeah, to human yeah. and very uh, close by monkeys. I mean, okay. it's very soon disappears. So that was also a huge interest to us uh, in the sense of this um, species difference. And so we tried to push exact into mouse embryonic stem cells to see whether we could, you know, play around with X chromosome inactivation. So what we did was to push the entire sequence of exact um, either on the X chromosome or on other uh, chromosomes and to CRISPR. Uh, and what we saw first is that uh, it accumulates on the X chromosome uh, where, from which is transcribed. And then when you launch differentiation of these cells, and so you launch X chromosome inactivation traditionally, what we do is we bias um, the X that is chosen. Usually you have 50% chance of one X chromosome of being inactivated. Well, in this case, when you have exact, uh, the chromosome that has this coating and expresses exact has less chances to be inactivated. And finally, we rescued that by silencing this exact RNA. Uh, we rescued this phenotype, meaning that it was not only the insertion that was preventing uh, this X from being inactivated, but it was really the act of transcription and the RNA itself that was preventing the X to be chosen. So this was quite a complementary approach to push it a bit further. Because at that, at that point in time, we were not able to manipulate naive human embryonic stem cells because they were just you know, being cultured and it was the early days. So we thought moving to the mouse system was the closest we could get mm -hmm. to start uh, functionally address the role of exact. So last question on that uh, topic. Um, so when you look at the human uh, system, do you see exact only on the inactive or also on the active um, X? So does it code the complete active chromo uh, X chromosome or is it just uh, wrestling with um, the exist on the inactive one? So in human embryos, we only see it on the two active X chromosome when they're still, the both of them are active in, in females. And in males, we see exact on the active X chromosome that's left. Once you launch chromosome activation, exact disappears and the, okay. the X becomes silent. So we weren't able yet to time precisely this, but this is the, like the, 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 the correlation we can make for now. 
Okay. So since you run your own lab, your focus had shifted away from the X chromosome to epigenetic analysis of breast cancer on a single cell level, or, or are you still working on those uh, X chromosome things? No, not, not anymore. Okay. <laughs> so why did you make the shift? Is it because you were interested in breast cancer genomics uh, from the beginning, or were there some other things that, that drove the, this, the change? Well, the thing is, I had done my PhD in cancer epigenetics, and it was really fascinating to me, this kind of a, a potential tumor plasticity at the level of chromatin marks. Uh, and we, at that time, we didn't have either the technology nor the understanding of this deregulation. And that's why I went initially to uh, human development to learn a lot about how it was going normally in a, in a, in a physiological situation, how our epigenetic landscape regulated. So I learned a lot during those seven years, but the mm -hmm. idea right from the start was to come back, to okay. come back and to bring the knowledge I had got on this uh, normal situation to the cancer situation and see what difference would it make to my understanding of how it was going wrong in, in tumor cells. So this was really kind of a, a choice right from the start. Wow, that's interesting. Or uh, that's, that's good that it turned out this way so that you had the opportunity to really um, come back to that as you initially planned that. That's, uh, yeah. So what I found is a paper from 2019, Nature, Genetic, Nature Genetics, which should be the first one uh, from your uh, own lab, um, which was titled High Throughput Single Cell Chip Seek Identifies Heterogeneity of Chromatin States in Breast Cancer. So uh, the list of authors on this publication is very long, <laughs> but was, what was your contribution to this uh, story? So um, here, um, when we started the lab, we had uh, like a naive or uh, questions that we wanted to answer. And the idea was we really want to access the heterogeneity of epigenomic landscape in tumors and also have access to their dynamics. I Meaning, can we understand how epigenomic landscape are remodeled uh, during either um, tumor progression and or respond to therapy it was clearly our goal. But in 2017, when we started the technology, we didn't have the right technology because we didn't have any means to look uh, precisely at a given time point and the heterogeneity of these landscapes, nor to address them and their evolution over time. Whereas for genetics, it was already going on for quite some time that people were able to look at heterogeneity and dynamics thanks to whole genome, whole exome sequencing, where you have access to this heterogeneity to start with. So we were kind of wondering how we would fill that gap. And this is where we turned to a collaboration with physicists uh, that are close by to Institut Curie, which is École de Physique Chimie. And these guys were specialists in microfluidics. And so we teamed up and also with their startup, which is Hi-Fi Bio. Um, and we teamed up for us, uh, what we brought to the table was clearly uh, our uh, capability to analyze uh, data, uh, single cell data, and also to engineer this data and get the, the, the information out of it. Plus our questions, I mean, these guys were physicists and we came with our system saying, okay, in this context of resistance to therapy, we won't ask the question whether heterogeneity has anything to do with it. And we helped them finalize the system and develop all the data capability. And so altogether, I mean, it wouldn't have been possible. This was clear collaboration as much as it can get. Um, uh, the idea was to set up a system uh, by the PhD student, Kevin Grosselin, who was instrumental in this, setting up a system whereby you can study chromatin cell per cell. And if for people who know a lot about single cell technologies and single cell RNA-seq technologies, um, it's a bit more complex uh, because in single cell RNA-seq, you put everything into a drop or a well, and you do everything at the same time. You lyse your cells, you do your reverse transcription, and you label your RNAs with barcodes, and that's kind of the trick. 
Well, here there's a bit of a problem is that when you prepare chromatin, you use MNAs. So you did the shearing with um, enzymatic shearing and not with sonication? Yeah, in droplets, sonication was not an option. Yeah, uh, yeah you don't want to perturb the droplets in the oil and so on. So the, yeah. only, the only possibility was to do enzymatic shearing, yeah. But, but the problem is that MNAs or other enzymes eat up the barcode. So if you put some uh, oligos to label your chromatin <laughs> to start with, well, they're going to be eaten up. So this is where we had to do like three steps of microfluidics to first prepare chromatin, then inactivate MNAs in the drops, and then bring those famous barcodes to the table and fuse those drops to have barcoded chromatin by ligation. So it was kind of a really tricky process in terms of microfluidics, and that's why this collaboration was so uh, instrumental to having uh, this type of data. And then we, we worked together to, to analyze and benchmark our technology, and this is where we, we got excited because we were able to see for the first time epigenome single-cell-wise. Um, it, it was quite uh, something for the lab and, and for our collaborators. Um, and in this Nature Genetics paper, what we did was to apply this technology to a very uh, practical case uh, in terms of uh, clinics. Um, we had the chance at Institut Curie to have uh, patient-derived xenograft models. Okay. Uh, one of them was uh, a model from a patient given uh, her tumor to, it was a luminal tumor. And it was initially sensitive to the therapy that a patient usually get with hormonal therapy. Uh, but when you put it on the mice and you treat over and over again the tumor with this treatment, it becomes in the end resistant. So what we did was to profile both the initial sensitive tumor as well as the resistant uh, tumor was coming from the same initial tumor. And we wondered whether there was some amount of epigenetic heterogeneity and whether this was moving around during the disacquisition of the resistant phenotype. And this, to our surprise, uh, we were able to see, thanks to this single-cell approach, that indeed, in the, initially in the treatment, there's an amount of epigenetic heterogeneity, and it seems as if there's parts of an epigenetic clones or a population of a specific epigenetic landscape that's being selected for by the treatment. And yeah, and it was kind of the first example of opening the box of what is under there, under this general epigenomic profile, while there's two kinds of population, and it might be linked to the resistant phenotype. So this was kind of the proof that it might be interesting to look at this type of information in these clinical situations. So what difference did what differences did you find? So we looked at H3K27 trimethylation, which is the repressive histone mark. Um, and what we found is that the cells that are resistant-like already have the epigenomic identity of resistant cells. They have a reorganized epigenome. Uh, they have lost or to start with, they didn't have H3K27 repressive histone marks are some very interesting transcription cell sites involved in defining um, basal cell identity. So in the mammary gland, there's both luminal and basal uh, cells. And here it's supposed to be a luminal tumor. Well, these cells have the potential to transcribe genes of the basal identity because they have lost the repressive histone marks that were there initially to, re to repress this identity. And they're also implicated in epithelial to mesenchymal transition, which is known to participate in uh, drug resistance in many different uh, cancer types. So what's happening, we guess, is that you see a redistribution and a loss of H3K27 methylation at very precise genes that might be key to the resistance process. Um, yeah, and interestingly enough, actually, we also did single-cell transcriptomics, and we don't necessarily see transcription happening at these genes in these cells, meaning that either the technique is not precise enough, sensitive enough, or there's a decorrelation between the fact that you lose these repressive histone marks you get chromatin that get open up 
and you need transcription factor to activate transcription, well, maybe it's not already the case. And you see this order of events that could be very interesting into how we understand those tumor evolution processes. So uh, to sum it all up, it, it seems that the cells that are resistant to the treatment are not the cells that you want to treat because they changed identity. And Perhaps, you, exactly. Yeah, okay. You then further pursued this road of single cell analyses. And just last November, you published a paper describing a new method called CROM-S-Scape or uh, Chrome Escape. <laughs> so what does it do and how does it work? And this was probably also uh, inspired by your math and physics background. Yeah, so the idea was to, to, to kind of a companion paper to what we had done in the Nature Genetics to really uh, publish our method of uh, analyzing epigenomes. So our objective was to produce a reproducible kind of way to analyze all types of epigenomic data, either single cell attack, uh, any a technology for single-cell chromatin profiling, um, and to be able for non-holding people to, to analyze, visualize, and interpret the data. So that's kind of the challenge. So we encapsulated all our scripts and custom analysis into um, a web-based application, like on Chromescape. You can either do it online, or you can also work on your computer and do it on an R console, and if you want to, if you're a bioinformatician, it's fine. And this, uh, we exemplified the power of this by studying the, the epigenomes of the tumor microenvironment, where we can easily analyze subclones and see that in some tumors that are very aggressive, there are some uh, fibroblasts with a specific epigenomic landscape and so on. But it really eases now uh, the way we analyze epigenomes in the lab, and we hope to share that with others. So um, the data is available on GitHub, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, and uh, you can download it if you want to, to use it. But how do you run it on a web platform? Do you have it run on your um, lab infrastructure or where does it run? So either you run it locally and you just need to type in the GitHub. It's very detailed on how you install that. You just have to have the, the RStudio console and you just launch the mm -hmm. app and then you do everything on the um, uh, Chrome or I don't Firefox uh, interface. Mm -hmm. Uh, or uh, what we're trying to do now, it is we have it installed at Curie on a, on a shiny server, but the idea is that it's not yet accessible from outside. So we have a okay. demo server from outside that's available. If people want to check out, it's, it's in the GitHub as well. Mm -hmm. And all the data sets are on GEO and GitHub. Yeah. Okay. And then this uh, produces uh, uh, publication-ready figures? or <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So the idea is that you can download the plots, very nice PCA, UMAPs, any reduction of dimension and all the differential analysis, you can download all the plots in, in PDF and PNG. That's yeah, kind oh, of the perfect. Idea. Yeah, that's perfect. So when I prepared this interview, I also found another paper by your lab, but this is not published yet, but only available on BioArchive. Um, and this is titled H3K27 trimethylation is a determinant of chemotolerance in triple negative breast cancer. So um, what did you find out about the connection of H3K27? I think you already touched on that um, um, uh, recently. But um, yeah, can you maybe also go into the details of triple negative breast cancer? What is a triple negative breast cancer? Yeah, so this is our latest kind of a baby, I would say. <laughs> yeah, so triple negative uh, breast cancer uh, is the most aggressive subtype of breast cancer. It accounts for 15 to 20 percent of breast cancer. And the idea is quite heterogeneous uh, in terms of tumor-to-tumor uh, tumor, -tumor viability. Plus, there's no major um, recurrent driver in terms of genetics. You have TP53, that's at more than 80% uh, mutation rate. But then the next one comes under 10%. Okay. 9%. So meaning that there's no clear driver at the genetic level, or there are too many of them. 
Uh, and so we thought that it was an interesting case to, to interrogate the epigenomic heterogeneity again and how chromatin landscape to participate into defining this tumor subtype and its evolution under therapy, uh, under chemotherapy, which is a standard of care uh, for this uh, uh, tumor subset. There is no targeted therapy whatsoever. So they're quite in the old ages of therapy. And here, um, what we tried to do was to set up um, in vivo and in vitro, uh, really recapitulate the dynamics of acquisition of tolerance and resistance to chemotherapy as it is in patients. So thanks to, to patient direct xenograph and also a cell line. And we, we leverage our single cell technologies to characterize the evolution of chromatin landscape, both K27 methylation and K4 as well. And we, 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 we clearly saw that, strikingly enough, if K27 is a clear proxy of this evolution of phenotype, switching from chemo-naive to tolerant and then resistant cells, when you look at active K4 methylation, which is supposed to accumulate on transcription starts that have been uh, transcribed, well, the cells are indescribable, meaning you cannot differentiate a single cell at the K4 level, either if it's chemo-naive or tolerating chemo. And this, this was pretty much of a surprise because transcription and uh, transcriptome are changing. And what we figured out is that actually K4 is already there, meaning that in chemo-naive cells, the genes are supposed to be turned on during this exposure to chemotherapy. They have repressive K27 through methylation for some of them, but they also already have K4 through methylation. They're in a bivalent configuration. And this is actually it was fun because we discovered it with single cell that we couldn't trace this evolution because it was already um, already there. And so we did some traditional uh, reach chip experiments uh, to see whether these opposite marks were accumulating on the same nucleosome, and indeed they do. Uh, meaning that what we think is happening is that H3K27 through methylation is kind of the sole lock to the activation of the genes. Once you remove it, and we've tested that, the expression program of drug tolerance is on. Uh, and, and then, so for us, it was kind of a, a therapeutic opportunity. Is can we modulate H3K27 distribution and see an effect on the phenotype, on how well a drug tolerates chemo to start with? And we did it in the two directions. We tried both to use EZDH2 inhibitors uh, to remove uh, completely of the genome H3K27 through methyl marks. And we also tried to prevent the removal of this H3K27 by using histone demethylase inhibitor. And the striking thing is that they have opposite effect on the phenotype. If you let the cells have no repressive mark, they tolerate much better chemotherapy, like if everything was possible in a sense, because you remove all those repressive histone marks. On the opposite, if you prevent them from demethylating their genome, well, they tolerate much less chemotherapy. They don't have the same propensity to tolerate this issue. So we do believe that controlling this repressive histone landscape is key in defining your ability to tolerate chemotherapy. And the, and the thing we, we tried to push a bit further was to add um, phylogeny and lineage tracing in these experiments to see, can we talk about plasticity? Can we talk about cell fate in this uh, process? Indeed we can, because when we, had, uh, we were monitoring cell fate through phylogeny um, in our data, thanks to barcode, genetic barcodes that were integrated initially in our models. And we were able to see that these inhibitors, whether EZH2 inhibitors or, or were modulating the number of different um, cells in terms of lineage diversity that could tolerate chemo. So it's not only about having more cells, it's, it's also about having more different cells. Mm -hmm. So it's really a, about plasticity that we're controlling there. So. Yeah, this seems to be uh, very promising, right? So is that 
something that because uh, yeah this was uh, the last paper i found from you so i'm talking more about what you're doing now and what you want to pursue in the future is that something that you are now following up on yeah clearly we want to push on the universality of this process whether is this bivalent configuration seen in patient already that's the first question because now we've seen it in cell line in pdx well pdx is almost like patient but let's go and check directly in patient plus can we always link the ability of cells to tolerate or to resist to chemotherapy to this bivalency something we want to want to test is it always the same genes uh, that uh, have this bivalency that get reactivated does it depend on the treatment or is it only because there's therapeutic stress that it happened very fast these are all the questions we're uh, investigating right now to 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 have an appreciation of what's going to be the potential of these findings and whether we really want to push it to the clinic And then in the end, I'm um, adding maybe one of those um, inhibitors uh, to the <laughs> chemothera chemotherapeutic approach, probably. That yeah, would be the end goal. Yeah, that's what we're testing in vivo. Yeah, that's what we're doing right now. I must admit that with the COVID situation, we had kind of a delay uh, for this mice project. They were all killed, unfortunately, but we're now uh, pursuing these experiments and they're quite promising, actually. So we'll be able to know more soon. In the future, yeah. Fingers crossed that we will be able. Are you... So, yeah, just asking, uh, uh, are you in the process of writing something up right now so that what we can read in the future by your archive, maybe? Or uh, So I think that the article we just put is really our latest efforts. So we're not in the process of writing anything new. We have some projects that are uh, getting some interesting data. We're working mostly on um, the early steps of tumorigenesis and how, in this case, uh, we have a mouse model because we cannot have access to that in humans. Mm -hmm. Uh, how in this case, uh, our monitoring of the epigenome uh, could tell us a bit more about how this initial step and how cell identities transform uh, the very uh, early steps. So this is what we're pursuing now. You might want so, to hear that, but yeah. it's going to be not, not soon. <laughs> yeah. So your focus will be more on wet lab experiments than on bioinformatics. So bioinformatics more being the tool and using what you have achieved already and uh, trying to get the data out of the wet lab right now. Yeah, I would say that right now we're in this kind of phases where we have a lot of data to analyze, but I think at some point we'll go back as well to the development in bioinformatics. We have for that uh, collaboration going on with the Google Lab in Paris so that we're sure that at every step of the way we have the best algorithm we can get uh, to get the best out of the data. So it's kind of a cycle. I mean, we do we try to, to keep up the pace on both. Yeah. Okay, to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. The first one would be, did you at one point of a career, uh, I mean, it uh, sounds very um, successful uh, right now, but did you at one point face the situation that you have reached a dead end and did not really know what to do next, how to proceed? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, we're in a good situation right now, but there has been many times where it wasn't the case. Um, uh not that long ago actually i mean when, when we managed to do our single cell approach uh and we validated that we were at the moment where we're running out of the early money you get some uh, money to start your lab uh, we wanted to do our proof of concept that we we're able uh, for the first time to do this single cell view but it was you know going on the same times and we ran for the rc uh starting grant and it was so we were kind of in a stressful situation where we didn't get money there was kind of six months where we were like okay we need more money and now we have all this grant coming in thanks to this paper but there was a moment where i feared uh we wouldn't move on to the next phase which was uh, from the two or three starting years where we move on to the four five six next year so this was clearly a, a stressful situation Uh, and it was even more stressful than when I when I got during the postdoc or PhD because here you have a lot of people working with you. You pay their salaries, so I would say that was kind of the most stressful situation I encountered so far. Uh, 
yeah, in comparison, PhD or postdoc stresses are a bit less. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because you only have to care for yourself and not for others. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so caring for yourself is one thing, but caring for four or five people that uh, is another story. Yeah. So in the last, I think it's 35 minutes now, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings that you would consider your most important finding or what we might have missed in this interview? Mm. I think we, we talked about a lot of things, so we didn't miss much. Uh, no, I would, from my early days in human development, I would really... Uh, focus on the exact long current which was really the kind of discovery you want you want to have it was really like oh uh, we're discovering a new new london current RNA. let's look in the microscope wow it looks like it exists and it was you know this moment when you know you're touching something exciting uh and you you tell the other lamens so come 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 guys and see what you have in the microscope so i would really remember that from these seven years so it's a one one time thing um And then now in the lab, I, I would say that uh, this bivalency and, and the fact that perhaps in chemo-naive cells, you have a, cells are ready to deal with the stress that's going to come up to them, I think is exciting but stressful because it means the tumor cells have a potential to react quite easily to, to the stress you're going to impose on them. And so this is the very exciting findings that, that we have made, I think, uh, so far. So thank you, Celine, for your time and for being on this show. This was the 43rd episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout out on a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotif.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog Motivations at activemotif.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.